again to the Dishcast, and we have with today a really interesting guest, highly controversial, Saurabh Amari, and he's the founder and editor of Compact, a radical American journal, and he's a contributing editor at the American Conservative. He spent nearly a decade at News Corp as the op-ed editor of the New York Post and as a columnist and editor with the Wall Street Journal in the op-ed pages in New York and London. His books include From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith, and more recently, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Lots of people talking about all sorts of things he has said and written and provoked. So here's a chance to actually hear from the man himself. So thank you so much for agreeing to come along. Hey, my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. You have a really remarkable life story, even though you're... How old are you now? 37. 37. Well, anyway, in 37 years, you packed quite a lot. And I think people need to understand that because for me, reading your book, your memoir, From Far by Water, was a really amazing journey through a very unlikely life. You were, you were born and grew up in revolutionary Iran. Correct. And yet reading your book, your own particular household was not exactly a picture of theocratic control or discipline. Tell us about how your family sustained a kind of very easygoing life and culture within that kind of revolutionary situation. Yeah, so I was born to a middle-class, somewhat bohemian family in Tehran. My mother was an abstract expressionist painter. My father was an architect who was fond of the postmodernist style. That's not something architects, it's not used anymore as a fashionable thing, but at the time he, he did and was a practitioner. And, you know, as I write in the memoir, my childhood world was one divided between the world outside our doors and the one behind our closed doors. And the one outside our doors, I think, a lot of Americans or Westerners are familiar with at least superficially. I mean, it's a newly established theocracy, a society that had gone through a period of aggressive secularization and then mounted a mass backlash against it and, and sought to re-Islamize itself. That's all familiar, I guess. Behind our closed doors, you know, I was a, a, a child of artists and I was, you know, they were nominally Muslim, but my parents were sort of unbelievers. My grandparents with whom we lived. It was like a two-story house. My grandparents were a little bit more orthodox, I suppose, in terms of practicing, but even they like would drink from time to time and very still a kind of very liberal Islam, I call it that. And they created this world for me in which I was surrounded, surrounded by, you know, like Tintin and Asterix and also sort of high art cinema that was not appropriate for, for a seven, eight-year-old, but there I was. And so that's the kind of so movie. It feels I, kind of, yeah, it feels kind of a bohemian. One thing that struck me is your parents both asked you to refer to them by their first names. Now, yeah. if I were thinking of that kind of, I would think Berkeley, not, not Iran, but it just showed that there was plenty of liberalism under the surface in Iran as you grew up. And yet when you went to the school, of course, the, the brutality of the enforcement of Islam 
in all parts of your education were, but you didn't like that either, right? You did not like the way in which religion was pounded into you in high school. Yeah, I mean, I, I should say two things about that. One is, let me just briefly go back to the bohemian aspect. I didn't like that either, as you, as you gleaned from the book. As I say, so my, my dad would never say, you know, son, here's, here's a kind of moral order. Maybe no father does that, but mine especially was indifferent to that kind of thing. His only sort of, he would always be like, be yourself, right? So it's very Berkeley. I could draw all over my walls of like my room and our house. They were lenient by by West, like extremely lenient by Western standards, let alone Iranian ones. Now, to go to the point about about Islam, there were two aspects, one which I disliked and one that I liked. The, the part that I disliked was what maybe anyone having to do, any child having to do some sort of memorization would find distasteful. In this case, you know, they would make us memorize a large chunk of, of the Quran. And I struggled with... <laughs> And except, you know, in, in the case of the Islamic Republic, if you failed, like there could be a beating for the, you know, for the transgression. The part that I liked about it was, liked it despite itself somehow, is the story of the Shiite imams. The, as you know, Shiism, the linchpin of Shiism is, is faith that the Muslim community should have been ruled, not by the caliphs who became the Sunni caliphs, but by the 12 descendants of the of the Prophet Muhammad. And obviously I didn't take any of it to, as, as a sort of revelation. I was pretty skeptical from a very early age. I was not a, like a deep believer, but I found the idea of, of the sacrifice of the martyrs, again, somehow moving in a way that I couldn't, I couldn't rationalize as much as already by that point, I thought that one should be rational and this is all you know, piety is for superstitious fools and, and sort of provincial people are into this. We're, we're not like that. Of course, we don't believe this stuff. Nevertheless, I found the sort of Shiite martyrology and iconography with all this kind of blood and, and, and sacrifice and so forth, moving as narrative, I should say. And that imprinted something in me that I realized that I kind of suppressed for a long time and I'm sort of speeding up the story, but I would find a version of that much, much later in life in the Catholic faith. Yes, there's a there's a real draw to bloody martyrdom and the composure and determination of people facing imminent death mm -hmm. for the sake of something that they could easily forswear and avoid, but nonetheless go through with it that, of course, has a huge impact because it's very hard to witness anybody's faith stronger than that, that they're willing to give up their actual life in that moment, which creates a kind of standard of holiness, as it were, that, that lodges itself in the back of your brain. For me, I mean, for me, reading about people being burned at the stake, for example, which is you know, a not dissimilar scenario for, for people who are religiously not permitted, also has that intense resonance just, just martyrdom itself. And of course, Christianity was built on martyrdom in, in many respects. But tell me, so you, so your family did get in trouble every now and again with the morality police, a little bribe here and there got you through. But what you, the story you tell us of your parents 
also having a rather unconventional marriage, right? Your father would disappear or yeah. he would sleep on the couch. Um, he didn't seem to be in charge of finances. He seemed to like walk away from, <laughs> take people out to dinner, then walk away from paying the bill. This is a kind of unnerving, not so much absent father, as un unreliable father, as it were. Yeah, I mean, so my parents were divorced when I was seven. But it's part of their kind of therapeutic bohemian mentality. They thought that I shouldn't know that they're divorced. So they sort of lived together and pretended to be married for several years. I only caught on that they were divorced, you know, when I was 13, 14 and about to what leave. Was the, what was the actual difference in their, in their, in their actual relationship between? I think it's just, the, it? just, the, just the stuff that you said. My, my father was, they were all from, they were sort of children of 68, which existed as much in Tehran as in Berkeley or Paris, as we've said, but in a middle-class professional milieu. And after the Iran-Iraq war, there was actually a kind of economic boom in Iran, such that the professional classes, despite what you might imagine, actually were, some began to do fairly well, including a lot of the my, my parents' grad school, sort of art school friends. And those other friends sort of abandoned the bohemianism, or they kept it on as just a kind of superficial sheen, but didn't take it like kind of literally and seriously. Whereas my parents, and especially my father, kept to it, right? He, he saw bourgeois conventions as so much humbug, you know. He, he earned money, and he was, again, he was a fairly successful architect, but he just quite never thought it important to like save, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so that was the that was the basis of their differences. But weirdly, I mean, they had a somewhat loving marriage post marriage. It's a very, in some ways, a loving marriage post marriage. But I, I, I find them quite unusual in regard. In fact, even in the West, I still haven't met anyone who calls their parents by their first name. Yeah, you, you do have to you have to go to Hippieville before you get there. I certainly that would have been really weird yeah. for me growing up of anything like but in that Ireland, happened. right? No, in England, in southern in, in, England, in southern sorry, England. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But uh, meanwhile, a little drips and drops of the west is coming through into your consciousness tv movies some of the big blockbusters when you we think of people in these regimes you don't really imagine that they're also as many are actually able to access aspects of western culture that will obviously have an impact on them and you began at least again i'm i'm really inferring from your book correct me if my reading of it is incorrect but you began to sort of think of the west as this kind of perfect escape this this place where these, these conventions, the religious orthodoxy, but also maybe some of your parents' wishy-washiness would be corrected. Is that how America appealed to you? How did America seem to you before you found your way here? I mean, you have to filter all this through the brain of a 13, 14-year-old, maybe a precocious one. I mean, I, I'm picking up conversation. My, my parents are, in again, in these sort of smoky, boozy parties, you know, a kid might hear that 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 liberal democracy, that 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 Marxism, that that you know, like, and you sort of in, try to infer what the adults are saying. You try, you try to piece the bits together into something like your own worldview. And I especially sort of because I was surrounded by my parents knew what a lot of Iran's like prominent novelists and filmmakers, poets. I kind of wanted to be one of these people, right? They were like these people who had their picture in the back in the back flap of the book, sort of looking, I'm, I'm, it's, it's an audio podcast, but they're sort of putting their forefinger to their forehead with a cigarette, you know, typically with like smoke rising. And that's kind of what I wanted to be. So 
I, I was precocious, but nevertheless a child. But I gathered that the West was this place of of hyper rationality, you know, hyper individualism, and that's where I people like me really belonged. And so that was my true homeland before I ever set foot. Your father didn't come here, though. No, he did not. Uh, he had never done his military service. There was all sorts of complications if you don't satisfy that requirement. Like he couldn't open a bank account, let alone buy it. He was a cash only guy. And obviously they were divorced. So it was my uncle who applied for us for the family preference visa program, aka chain migration. So, you know, at that point it was, he applied for his sister, my mother and me. So my father was never going to leave. And and almost never contacted you again. I mean, you, you say that yeah, you wrote him, no. you called him, you, you made some efforts, but, but yeah, he seemed effort. to just disappear from your life. Yeah, well, I don't entirely blame him for that. I think in retrospect, maybe at the time I was harder on him. In retrospect, he wanted me to sort of not think of myself as one of those Iranian expats who still have one foot in the old country. This is the most charitable interpretation. He wanted me to just sort of think of me as, for me to think of myself as, that is home now. That's where you are. Don't think too much about this dusty old place. When did he, he died in 2017? Correct. It says in, in, in the book. So did you go to the funeral? No, I can't go back to Iran. Oh, right. Forgive me. I, 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 should, have, I should have intuited that. I, I've worked for too many organs of the Zionist entity. Yes, you are completely corrupted at this point. Far too dangerous. So there you are with your mom in this brave new world of America, and you go to Utah, that, that flesh part of decadence in America. And no, you didn't have the same response as Said Qutub, as, as, you, as you say in your book. But nonetheless... What were you surprised by in the United States? And what were you, for the bad, for the good, and what were you most surprised by that was bad about it? Well, I mean, the, 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 my experience shouldn't be, can't be generalized that much precisely because of what you mentioned, Utah, right? Like I, I imagined coming to a kind of decadent Manhattan of the, of the movies, you know, like, of, of ni- 1980s Manhattan as portrayed in like, you know, Fatal Attraction that, we, you know, which I had seen because like, Iranian parents wouldn't be like, oh, no, that movie isn't for kids. Like they'd be like, it's a foreign movie. He's going to watch, you know. And so I watched that and I sort of thought that's that's, it's, you know, like you said, a fleshpot and that's not what Utah is. Insofar as there is any sense of American regionalism left, it's left in the Mountain West and specifically in Mormon country. So what I disliked about it was immediately being struck by a religion that grew out of the kind of 19th century, various sort of revivalist ferments, but also is incredibly bizarre. It's not even, it's not even Shakerism, Quakerism. It's, you know, it's, 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 you know, has a, as an article of its creed that, the ancient Israelites came to the Americas, tried to convert the Navy, natives, failed to do so, but left behind their trials and tribulations on golden tablets, which a guy in upstate New York found and decoded using <laughs> special glasses. So, and, and I would say, I mean, to broaden the point, though, there was something of, of Protestant, although Mormons, again, 
don't fit neatly into Protestant, Catholic, that's kind of sectarian. They, they sure aren't Catholic, though. <laughs> they're, sure aren't Catholic. they're just their own thing. Yeah, they are. But still, there is some element of sort of frontier Protestant ethic, which is cashes out as GOP politics, or at least it did by the 90s but also cashes out as a kind of communitarianism, which, which is underpinned by their bizarro religion. And, and I found that very suffocating. So it was a sort of, I, I almost instantly sort of picked up my oppositional energies against the mullahs and switched the canon toward this new country. And it's what I found to be, it's kind of broadly speaking, Judeo-Christian, Protestant, sensibility. That's what I disliked about it. What did I like about it? I, I mean, early on, I'd love the fact that you could go to a store and buy like a Pink Floyd album, like brand new, right? In Iran, you're always dealing with these like secondhand cassette tapes. Someone gives you the tape, you record over it, blah, blah, blah. You know, here you are, you can go, you know, you can go see Bob Dylan in the flat. Yeah, of course, it's amazing. And you also start reading. So you, you and being a precocious person, you, you seem to be reading some pretty big books along the way. You you get entranced by Marx and Marxism. You you then discover Nietzsche and all that. And Nietzsche probably seems to me the most powerful writer in your psyche, at least up until that moment in your life. Is that? Is yeah, that... Nietzsche first. So I ran across a dust book, Zarathustra, in a university library. I was still in high school. I picked it up and sort of devoured dust book, Zarathustra, and I don't know, 72 hours, barely sort of got out of my room to eat, shower. I was transfixed by that book. And so the unfortunate thing about it is that Nietzsche was a philologist. He really knew the classics. He really knew the Bible. And his attack on, on, on Platonism, on Christianity, on the sort of the classical and Christian roots of the West is premised on knowing the classical and Christian roots of the West. Whereas in my case, you're a teenager. This is a cool book. My mom's like, well, it sounds like you could be into existentialism. He'd read Nietzsche, you know. And so I, I, I encountered it without having read the Bible first, right? Or without having read Plato's Republic first. Nevertheless, I mean, I, you know, I, it, I should be more generous to Nietzsche in retrospect. I mean, it's, I mean, he's one of those captivating intellectuals, and and the idea that God is dead is a very liberating thought. Well, because then that means man is not a creature of a creator, but can make his own world, can make his own destiny. And so what appears like the strictures of traditional religions or the idea that there is, you know, the classical idea that there's a natural law that all people are sort of aware of in their own hearts or are capable of accessing through their reason, that all goes out the window. Everything goes much more radical. And so then to me, the next step was, so what do you, what do, you do if you're a follower of Nietzsche? Well, a lot of the 20th century existentialists happen to be Marxists. So then I, I went that way as well. And I was, again, to tie our story a bit together, I was most attracted to the, not to Marx as, as structural critic of capitalist relations of production, the exploitation that's embedded in commodity production, the labor theory value, and so on. I was interested in the most kind of Hegelian dimension of Marx, this marks the sense of, of history as having a destiny that various events ha take a kind of providential course. Of course, with Marx, 
that providential sense of destiny becomes embedded in material reality. And so in history, rather than the will of God, but nevertheless, finding their fulfillment in a revolutionary event, which then settles all the wrongs of the past, as it were. So that's, I say this because, you know, now at 37, there are things that I find useful about Marx as a thinker, but it's not those aspects. Those are the aspects which even a lot of Orthodox Marxists have since given up on because that the world just didn't turn out that way, right? Like, But, um, the, but the deeper Hegelian dialectic within it, the, the meaning it gave to everything, I mean, you, yeah. everything fit. Yep. And then you're just sitting on this historical wave waiting for communist consciousness to break out and everything will be wonderful and we will live. live it's the it's weakest aspects of Marxism, but it's also the most romantic. It is. And it's, it's weirdly enough, some of it is the most sticky in one's consciousness, too, yep. because, of course, it's much more interesting. There was a line in your memoir where you said, I longed for moral absolutes. Mm-hmm. That was your and it seems to me that that is the the theme here in a way that, that, that you reacted against. Strangely, the, the absolutism of, of theocratic Iran, probably because you were your parents son, but then you kind of chafed against their wrinkle and their dithering, their unseriousness, you might th- say, mm-hmm. of the way they lived their lives. So you come to America. America is this amazing thing but the mormons make you feel a little icky too they remind you a little bit of the mullahs very nice mullahs yeah and a low key uh, incredible incredibly sweet people yeah. wonderfully good fathers and mothers i mean all of it is is it is remains a really impressive community really and you're but you're yearning you're seeking at the meantime at the same time you're very candid in the book about all the drinking and some drugs and screwing around and and you go to teach for America, which is another really idealistic event. But this is all punctuated in your head with your own kind of careening morally and spiritually and psychologically from one bender to another, which is so reminiscent of many people who yeah, eventually exotic. seek and struggle to find faith. It's, it's a, actually rather conventional source of narrative uh, arts. Not to, not to, to just, I, there's nothing wrong with yeah. conventional. It's sincere and it's real. And it just happens to lots of people in that particular circumstance. Uh, so I want you to, if you don't mind, you, you then get yourself into journalism. You're a huge hit and you really join the sort of neoconservative wing of the right. Tell me how you came to that. Yeah, so I do have to, yeah, I'll, I'll speed it up, but. Um, Listen, the trouble is you've packed so much into 37 years, and there are more positions in your past yeah. that most people have in about few lifetimes. So it, well, it, you can I, speed I, it up, but I also want I would, to understand. I would just it. say that there's, there's a kind of inner integrity to it. Mm-hmm. which isn't captivated by just saying, you know, Sorab has held several positions. I mean, first of all, the idea of becoming an atheist and a Nietzschean and then dabbling with Marxism by your early 20s is not that uncommon. It's, it's, it's conventional. It's, it's all too conventional. <laughs> the, 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 the teenager finding Zarathustra is, you know, there's, there, it's, a there's cliche almost, almost. it's almost a cliche, yes. I mean, the only thing worse is when he reads Ayn Rand. Uh, uh, right. uh, but either of them... <laughs> Blessedly, I never. 
yes, I we, I think the whole world is relieved you never read that in your teens. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness um, knows what would uh, have happened. But but yeah, I'm not I'm not criticizing that you, you these things are if you're restless, if you're looking for as you said moral absolutes, you're going to try try as many as you can until one resonates with you, right? Well, and you want you want the right loves. What are the loves that are truly worthy of human beings as human beings? And that's that's what the life of the mind is about. That's what the life of faith also happens to be about. They just go at it through different means. In in very few cases, they end up resting the heart and mind in the same place. And I'm blessed to say that that's the case with mine. But my initial moving out of the kind of, like you said, a cliche, typical Nietzsche, Marx, et cetera, phase was a result of life experience. I, I became a school teacher and I see life's con- complexities. You know, the problem Teach for America tries to address is, you know, these underachieving classrooms in low-income communities. What is the issue? I mean, is it just money as a certain kind of redistributionist left says that didn't quite resonate with my experience because these schools were quite cash flush and depending on the teacher they, they could they could do something with the kids they could achieve something with the kids or not and you watch other people in my case one of my roommates in teach for america happened to be an israeli guy and he just seemed like a you know a better man not just as a professional but as a better human being and he to me like that suggested that there is a moral absolute in the world, right? I, having gone through the radicalism of Nietzsche, which denies all this, I had to look around and say, hmm, it seems like there's within my, myself, there's this conscience that tells me when I fall short of a certain standard and when I don't, et cetera, et cetera. I also start to read more widely beyond just sort of Marxist hagiography, hey, and I sort of become horrified with, with Marxist totalitarianism as actually played out in history. So then I come to a point where I appreciate the West now. I'm in my late, late, say maybe 25, 26, mid-20s. I appreciate what's best about the West, and I want to defend it. I want to preserve it. What is, what is that? It's this, it's this humane treatment. It's the sort of dignity of the individual. It's you know societies that just don't stamp human faces with boots, more or less. And I want to defend that. And at the time, in my mid-20s, it was the post-9-11 era, and it seemed like, and I, I actually communicated with you around this time, not that you'll remember because it was your blog, but like it was around the time of the Green Uprising in Iran, it was a time of the Arab Spring, it was, it was a time of, it seemed like liberal expansionism, and I was for that because I, I thought, you know, that as a, as a single Iranian man able to do whatever I want in the United States, that this is the highest good. This is what deserves our love. And it, it deserves our love to the point that we should impose it on other people, you know, at the end of, you know, Tomahawk missiles if necessary. So I became a neocon. I was hired. I went to law school, never practiced. That summer when I would have studied for the bar and joined a law firm, instead, I went to work for Brett Stevens, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, was hired at the end of the summer as a book review editor, and then shipped off to London a year later to help run the European opinion pages. And was it just a very conventional 
you know, neocons still remarkably faithful to the idea that the U.S. should spread democracy, that the problem, main problem in Europe is just, you know, the French just don't have enough low, low enough marginal taxes. So I, as, as any journal editorial writer does, I wrote plenty of op-eds, editorials about how, you know, France just needs labor reforms to become more kind of neoliberal, basically more economically. And uh, we were fairly pro-immigration. As you know, the journal has always been that way because it aligns with the interests of, of large of corporations. That's, capital. That's, <laughs> it's the organ of capital in this country in many ways. So I I, I bought they, into that. They were actually open borders, weren't they? I mean, uh, pretty close. They were. To I think by the time borders. I was there, it had already on the right become a little bit more sensitive. So it wasn't so extreme as, you know, this proposal they would publish every, every once in a while where add an amendment to the constitution saying there shall be open borders. It wasn't quite there anymore, but still fundamental pro-European integration, make it easier for labor, goods, service, and capital to move across Europe. And you know, I, I, I supported that. I think it works for a certain class of people, including myself at the time, right? If you're, especially if you're single, childless, and educated, that world works really well. And I don't, I don't blame myself you were in, for Yeah. And you were in London at that yeah. point, which was becoming sort of the capital of that Euro integration in some ways. I mean, it was where so many people from the continent would come to work because the labor laws were lighter. London itself was revolutionizing into something that many people in England itself didn't even recognize as the same country after a while. And it all mm -hmm. seemed to many of us who were, of course, in whose direct interest all this was happening, were quite happy with it. In fact, you know, London was so much more fun in the early 2000s than it had been in the 1980s, for goodness sake. And so what, what began to chip away at your confidence in the liberal order, both mm -hmm. domestically and internationally? Two things. One is more pragmatic or prudential. It's more immediate political, and one is more philosophical, but they tie together. To start with the more immediate, it was the the outcome of the post 9-11 wars, which I had cheered, although I'd come to it late, obviously, because I was a campus leftist when like the war was starting. And I, but, but having become a, a neocon, I was one of those people who defended the post 9-11 wars. Retroactively? That's a, yeah, that's a and, pretty and fantastic... I, I, Double backflip. Did and, you actually oppose them in no, the first place? I mean, um, far longer than one should have. I okay. mean, there are people who still are true believers. God bless them. There's just like five of them. But I was pretty, you know, again, because my project was this society is very good. I've done well by it. I want to protect it. And that means to try to make much of the rest of the world. And so obviously it turned out to be fantastically a bad idea. And I was both young enough and I think I, say, I dare say, I mean, young enough, and I would say honest enough, like I, I have this sense of there are ideas I've advanced and I look at the outcome and they they did not work out well. I, I wrote a book about the Arab Spring. I mean, it was, it was an anthology when I was, even before I joined the journal, I was like 24 years old when I published this anthology. And almost immediately afterward, you see the sort of turn toward either the same old kind of petro-despotism or worse, far worse, statelessness, state collapse, civil war, etc. And you have to say, no, that, didn't, that did not work out. Let's be honest. And then even more decisively on this kind of front was the 
European migrant crisis. I was in London at the time and, you know, my bosses said, you know, go report a kind of series on this, that a kind of mix of reportage and ideas. And so I was uniquely placed to tell that story at the journal because although it was called the Syrian refugee crisis, it was not Syrian. Syrians were maybe, I mean, estimates vary like a third to two thirds. The rest were, you know, Iraqis, Afghans, Iranians. Even, you know, when I was walking the migrant trail with the migrants, there were I, I encountered, you know, sub-Saharan Africans who had come through that route via Turkey because that's how where everyone was going. And I so I spoke one of the languages of this migrant trail. So I went, I pretended to be a refugee. I flew to Istanbul, stayed with a group of Afghan refugees and one Iranian. He was my entree to this sort of smuggler safe house, stayed with them for a week, did not cross for complicated reasons. They would go across, remember, the Aegean to, to, to the Greek Isles and so forth, but then did rejoin them on the Greek Isles, walked with them, crossed to the to European mainland, walked much of the way up through the Balkans, et cetera, et cetera. And th- so the reason why this event was important to me in terms of my intellectual development was because it was one of those, another one of those things, like the maybe Iraq war had been in 2003, 2005, although again, I was too young for that particular flashpoint. Or now you might say some of the COVID extremism or some of the other sort of media hysterias where it's it wasn't like some memo came down where we were all told you have to cover the story in a certain way, but you sort of knew that the story you have to tell of the migrant crisis is one where you have to, in a way, echo Merkel, we're Schaffendas, we can do this, we can integrate a million, mostly male, between 18 and 24 newcomers. And so I was living with the migrants, you know, and it's, in a, it's a weird experience of being an inside outsider, an outside insider, whatever you want to say, because I speak Persian fluently still, so I'm integrated among them, but I'm I'm not from their particular milieus, right? This is not like aspirational migrants. It's a different class of people. And I just watched their intense violence to each other, right? Every time, every few minutes, there'd be like a physical fight among the group of migrants. And I heard them say, you know, like, where do we get the best welfare? And they were said, no, you got to go to Sweden. You know, I've heard that's the best over there. And so the contrast between what I was actually seeing journalistically and what you'd flip open whether it was the journal or the guardian or whatever, or the times and you're like, this doesn't, this, so it, it was a sort of shattering of when you see up front that, so the elite journalistic consensus about something is very wrong. What it, could it, Merkel it, have done hmm? other than what she did? If Merkel had said, nope, we're not taking these, putting up the border fence right now. Yeah. Was that I mean, actually feasible for her? You know, uh, at the time, Douglas Murray, who's yeah. much more then, who was much, uh, uh, I considered Douglas at the time a very hard right figure. Yes. Almost a taboo figure. Uh, yes. <laughs> little, little, little fashy. Yeah. And, but he sent me an op-ed because I was an op-ed editor at the, at the European page. And he was like, help them enormously over there. Set up camps. And obviously there are conventions. I mean, there, these people are entitled to try to apply for asylum, but the idea that they can, they can come and they don't need, you don't have to adhere to the, to the Dublin rule of you apply where you first land, but you walk wherever you want to walk and then we'll process you there. Start out incredibly destabilizing for the countries that are on the pathway for Greece, you know, I've set up the Moria camp for, you know, these, these small shattered damaged Balkan states. 
they're not used to this. I mean, and then obviously it means the volume primarily ends up going eventually to to Germany and Sweden, where, you know, to say the least has not been a, a, a boon to social cohesion. So at the time I turned down Douglas's op-ed because I thought, hmm, that's not, that's not the, you know, I, again, I was like in my late twenties, but. So how did this affect your view of the West? Was mm-hmm. it just, was this beginning of sense that the mainstream media is, is not that's telling just the, you just the, the truth about that, the world or was it that, was it that, that, the, that the idea of a limitless borders borderless world in this case we're talking about literal geographic borders but it has you can think that that has the the word borders and limits limits as a, actually as a source of 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 freedom of of limits as a sort of as a, as a source of right order that was sort of began in my mind contra the I frankly contra the ideology in many ways of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, but not just the Wall Street. I mean, it's like FT, the Times, you know, they all have kind of roughly the same neoliberal ideology. And so, but, but that was one component of it. And then, I, you know, I remember having seen that and then seeing these various movements in, in Europe, whether it's peace and justice in Poland or Fidesz in Hungary or Brexit, frankly, where they are clearly expressing the anxiety of people who are not, who have not done one well by a kind of borderless neoliberal world. And economically speaking, they've been left behind in various ways. And, and I was sympathetic to them more than I maybe should have been for a Wall Street Journal editorial writer, where I thought, look, I kind of see a point. Like if, if like suddenly a lot of people showed up, I'd be a little bit confused. And and I began to notice that another thing, which is very key in these debates, which is I noticed that actually liberalism and democracy are at odds in many of these cases. And yet many of the sort of defend democracy types, Trumpism was also just beginning to sort of royal America around the same time. I was watching it from abroad, from across an ocean, but it would, people would say, we have to defend democracy. But what they often meant was we have to defend liberalism against the popular will. So I, I went to a house of a very, very prominent American journalist who, I, I'll, I'll say- you will, not, we, you will not name because it was uh, a private conversation. Should we, well, should it was, we it was Chatham House Rules and I'll still uphold Oh, okay, that. great. But, yeah. but it was a group of, like they had brought about a group of Polish intellectuals and liberals. It was like three months after PIS had come to power, the, the Ball and Justice Party. You know, the, the, the polls were saying, you know, the U- European Union should sanction Poland for this vote. And I just- I was the only one. I was like, wait, what are you guys are saying? You defend democracy. You, you're you're going to punish people for more or less for picking the wrong, picking the wrong government. And so you see that I began to notice for, for liberals, when they often talk about defending democracy, this is the whole apparatus of like Freedom House, National Endowment for Democracy. It's still some of them, my friends, I respect them, but they really mean certain liberal outcomes. And if, if the ballot well, for box, me, for me, that was Brexit. Because there was a campaign, it was lively and loud, it had lots of competing claims, some of which were false, some of which were true, but it ended with a democratic majority in favor of leaving. And the very people who claimed they were defending democracy said, no, we can't do that. These people are stupid. They've been conned, they've been fooled. And I too, even though I was a Remainer, in as much as I would have voted to stay in the EU for all sorts of reasons, even though I have no right to have a say in it because I've been abroad for so long. But I could see 
the contempt that so many of my peers in the elite had towards the people who had voted for this. And it kind of, honestly, I was kind of shocked uh, because even though I resent, I regretted it, that it was a bad idea. I, my, I felt my job as a thinker who was surprised by this, a little surprised, not entirely. I need to figure out what I got wrong. Where was this coming from? And, and I also discovered, not to bond with you too much, but, but I also discovered that they didn't really like nationhood. They didn't really like the idea that being British, for example, meant something more than just the sum of your economic output. That it, that it was part of a tradition, it was part of a, a people, a part of a history, an island history, which would always make it a little difficult to integrate into a European structure, at least since the 16th century, that had been the case. And you're right, I, I found, although I was horrified by Trump and still am horrified by Trump, there was something about the absolute certainty that the people who voted for him were a bunch of ignorant idiots and bigots that made me more sympathetic to the Trump forces, to be honest with you. I had a slight reckoning with my own generation. But I, I don't want to get ahead of us because there you are in London, as all this is happening, the immigration is happening, but you are seeking faith. You, you are beginning to think about Christianity as something which, of course, under, underpinned Europe and liberal democracy in, in many ways. Can you just Tell us how that happened. People always try, mm. will ask you, how did you convert? What is that act yeah. of conversion like? What, what, is, it, is, it a, is, it a, is it St. Paul? Is it Augustine? Is it, is it, is it you know, there are many other the models. And uh, Explain your model and how you explain it, how you would explain it to a completely secular person. Yeah, so for me, this is messing up our timeline because I'm the attraction to, that's okay. The attraction to Christianity began when I was still in the United States in right. my 20s. Began, I, I thought, say, okay, what are the roots of the West? Let me read the Bible. I finally actually read the Bible. And I said there was something about the idea of, of sacrifice that was very moving. And, of course, this, the, the sacrifice, the passion, the passion of Christ, was to me sort of the apotheosis of that, of that longing for of, of, a, of a sort of supremely redemptive act. And I couldn't get over this sort of the beauty of this reversal in the Christian story, which does turn upside down all your kind of natural ideas about God. What I mean by natural is what normal people, if they weren't encountered, they hadn't encountered Christianity, what they think of as God is rarely a God who becomes a baby, allows himself to be as an adult to be kind of spat upon, degraded, and ultimately crucified by his own creation out of love for them. It so overturns your expectations. Now, that doesn't necessarily, just because it's moving doesn't mean that it's true. So alongside that, I read Pope Benedict's books at the time he was the pontiff. The reason I read his books was because one time in New York, I had, I had, had a hard night of drinking the following morning. I was feeling very lousy about me. Nothing bad's happened, but I'm sort of like, walking around New York, about to catch a train back to Boston, where I was living at the time. And I was like, oh, man. And I'm sort of circling around the block, just sort of thinking about the course of my life. And I walk into a church. And it's just the Sunday Mass is about to begin. It's this Capuchin monastery right near Penn Station, of all places. And I, I'm very, very moved by 
by the words of consecration, which you know, Andrew, the sort of, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. I find myself in tears. I was very, I mean, it was, that was a very emotional experience. And then afterward, I steps outside and there's a picture of the reigning pontiff, usually in the vestibule of the church. In that time, it happened to be Benedict. And that also sent me into a kind of rapture of tears. And the, and the priest came up to me and said, you know, that's not God, son. And I was, even in my tears, I was sort of annoyed by this. I was like, yeah, yeah I know he's a pope. I know who the pope is. <laughs> well, not many but, people burst into tears at a picture of Pope Benedict. It's, it's, uh... <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But just to, <laughs> to me, those two experience encapsulated Catholicism. There is the, the sacrifice of the mass. It's, that's grace, which, you know, Catholics believe that the church is this divine divinely ordained institution that dispenses grace into into the lives of ordinary people into their misery and brings them into the sacrifice of calvary ever again right it's not just that it's a sort of memorial but but actually at the mass i didn't know all this at the time but i was very moved by that element of it and then you have in the picture of the pope you had you have apostolic authority it's a picture it's a it's a it's an encapsulation of two millennia of continuous authority. No, there's no other institution of the kind in the world, right? So that, that's more of a, I would say it's a kind of almost a more secular longing, right? But it's, of course, it, it, it looks to the eternal, but it's the idea of, of, of authority that's very attractive in its own way. So then I start reading his books and I'm sort of become convinced that, because I always thought of religion as something for sort of dumb provincial people. And, you know, I'm going through this period where I'm attracted to the mass. I'm sort of reading the Bible, but I was among secular people in New York city. I'm working at the wall street journal. You know, it's not a, you know, it's, yes, it's a right wing editorial page, but it's not like a pious place. And so when people would ask me like, what do you think about this stuff? I would always kind of distance myself. I would say, well, it's built a beautiful civilization, you know, or a Caravaggio is very, it's lovely. But I could never, but I don't, of course, I don't believe in it because I'm not one of those suckers. You know, that's kind of my attitude. And then, but then I read Benedict and I'm like, okay, actually really, really, there are really, really sophisticated, there's sophisticated reasons to believe. At the very least, you know, there's this thing of, of natural theology, right? Natural theology is not what's revealed by God, but what man can discern just by reason alone, right? There has to be a first cause, blah, blah, you know, there's Aristotelian versions of this, there's more... Kantian versions, but all of them sort of point to there has to be some creator. Now, to know more about him, you have to have revelation. But that that the idea that a lot of smart people were persuaded just at the level of reason, including you know the classical Greek kind of Socratic tradition, was kind of persuasive for my sort of intellectual vanity. Like, mm -hmm, yes, it's, you know, it's not just for suckers. And then now fast forward, I'm in London and I go to a mass. Eventually, this is at the Brompton Oratory. It's this center of traditionalism. And the mass was a Latin mass. It was not a traditional Latin mass. This is important. There's a, there's a traditional Latin mass, which is the church's pre-conciliar liturgy. It's before Vatican II. This was the new mass. This was the Vatican II mass, but done in a very reverent style in, in Latin. And so all of those longings came together and found their fulfillment in this particular mass. The, you have, on the one hand, the sacrifice of the cross, which I, at a human level, need because I'm a very lousy person otherwise. And then there is the continuity, the totality, the tradition of the church, 
with all its human warts, right? I mean, I'm not naive. I mean, I know something about church history even then of terrible popes in the medieval era, blah, blah, blah. But all of that is, there's just no, the, the expression for it is a sort of, it's one of, the church itself is one of its own signs of credibility, right? The fact that this one institution has withstood from Roman emperors to Napoleon to Stalin, blah, blah, blah. You're, you're also at that point in a country which had tried to stamp it out over several centuries. Right. And you're and in... Way, that particular church is a is an epicenter of... not I don't say resentment against that, but it's sort of like, we stand strong. You have these... Oh, I know. Of, I know. I know better than you do, are, probably. <laughs> I, I know that branch of Catholicism intimately. I... <laughs> The Brompton Oratory is 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 as hardcore as it gets. It's it is. And part of me was reading a book, was smiling a little bit at some of the theologians and who influenced me. Who I, I totally understand. I know where they're coming from, and so on and so forth. But the Brompton Oratory itself is an extraordinary place. When I've been there to mass, what has always often struck me is the the way in which, in fact, the mass is rather brushed through in some cases that hmm. that in fact it isn't actually treated with this delicacy it's as if they're hmm. so sure that whatever they do the consecration is going to happen it's not about them it's not about performance it's about the sacrifice it's not drama it's liturgy and and your feelings are kind of irrelevant to the liturgy and and that kind of self-confident catholicism and tell me about the person who really instructed you in the faith that you got you in through your rcia that's yeah so uh, it was not called an rcia at the that, so okay. for listeners who don't know this is the right of christian initiation for adults it's what the church for the most part uses for adult converts like me but i so after that mass which was the may of 2016 i right afterward i went to the oratory house which is basically the parish office house where, where the priests live and I knocked on the door and this kind of this old priest opens the door he's sort of wearing wire rim glasses with the with a cassock not a suit kind of black suit but a traditional cassock and he just opens the door and he's like you know the poshest English accent I've ever heard says you know how may I help you and I just said I, I want to become a Catholic and he said he didn't miss a beat he just said very well I shall instruct you and we would meet once a once a week, and it was very good for me. I mean, I, it was a it, it, like you said, there's that self confidence of. There's also of a, in that particular strain upper class mm-hmm. English Catholicism, which totally. is particularly strong because, of course, it survived centuries of persecution, and only the very wealthy were able to buy themselves out of this kind of persecution, the recusants over many centuries, and so. Yeah. That strain that has endured, you know, the strain in which they will say, I don't know whether this is still the case because I haven't been around there, I haven't been talking too much, but they would always say mass rather than mass. Is that still, <laughs> does that still happen? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think they say mass. So, <laughs> and, you know, I, well, some, but, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a bog Irish Catholic immigrant person, I certainly knew the difference between people who said mass and people who said mass. But there was something about the sort of even war style you know, that old Catholic aristocracy in Britain that that endured too. And that insofar as it did, these are among its 
extraordinary institutions that remained. And Brompton, of course, is uh, every young fogey flocked there in the 1980s. Yeah. And, you know, what I what I liked about it is you, you use the word self-confidence precisely that when I sat down, there was no, oh, uh, let's do icebreakers. Let's do color poster. It was so adult, right? It was sort of like, you know, we begin with St. Thomas. Here we go. You know, and so, and he spoke for an hour and he wasn't he wasn't too interested in like, what's your story? And you know what? It's I don't care because I don't if I've come to that point, my story isn't important. I want to hear what the church has to say. So, yeah, I mean, there's now that's a product of a very particular culture, as you said, it has a, it has a lit, rich literary history. I was just reading the Sword of Honor trilogy again over the I had COVID over over the last winter and I was reading Sword of Honor and he sort of mentions you know there was a they they wed at the oratories as sort of referring to some side side characters so there's all of that and it's a unique thing since then i mean early on i was very much into the cultural world of the oratory now i realize okay that, that there's a global church it includes africans it includes filipinos it includes in millions of indians millions of chinese people and they're not all you know, into this kind of a liturgical experience. And I, I, I resist some of the sort of, I mean, I sometimes go today to the traditional Latin mass just as a kind of treat, but I'm not, you know, I'm not an old fogey. You know, I, I have modern furniture in my house. I don't wear tweed. Okay. I have one tweed jacket, but you know, <laughs> it's not, it's not what I expect. We, I we used to call ourselves young fogies. That's what I meant. Young fogey. That's what yes. I meant. Because that was the only way we could make sense of, ourselves in the world and we weren't quite sure what we were doing except we were def desperately fond of gk chesterton and hilaire belloc and t.s Eliot, and those were the days i want to i mean this is all to me very interesting but you found the magisterium which to translate to non-catholics is the settled doctrine full doctrine of the church and so your 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 search for moral absolutes is is over you found it is there a danger in mm -hmm. that satisfaction in other words i think that the other thing that christianity does say very strongly to us is don't be so sure there's uh, there's there has to be humility in faith there has to be doubt in it because if you don't doubt you can't believe these are not things to be expunged it's it's funny because it's the same faith but i come at it from a very different vantage point because I grew up with it just being a fact. It was mm -hmm. just the way the world was. It was not something I had to intellectually search for. It was given to me. Mm -hmm. Now I then intellectually sought to understand it because like you, I was a precocious kid and I didn't ever fully rebel against it. But in that process, I think, and this is perhaps the difference between what you call a natal, native born or yeah. assigned Catholic at birth, whatever you want to call it, and the convert. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be very frankly, our, our, the old Catholics that miss mass too much and but know that it's in their bones can be a little suspect about converts. They're, they're, mm -hmm. they're always too certain. They have too much of the zeal. They perhaps don't see the flaws the way we do. They think they love the place more than we do, but probably not actually 
if you've hung in there for 58 years, as I have, you do love the place and it does mean something to you. Yeah. Do you worry about that? That in fact, a search for ab moral absolutes can end with a kind of rigid certainty that is, it is not really a very Christian. So two points, one very brief that I, I don't think that I love the church more than cradle Catholics. I kind of know what you're talking about in the sense that there are people who, you know, like a large Irish family, right? Where it's, uh, it, it's in the bones in a way. There is something to a kind of Christian peoplehood that it's in the bones in a way that, by contrast, my encounter with, with the faith is intellectual or have more intellectual. But that doesn't mean that I love it more, or that they love it less. So I, I make no claims like that. You know, conversely, I would say there can be a tendency in the church where people will say, you know, for example, like I often hear, you know, not just myself, but a few other thinkers in my intellectual milieu sort of it pointed out that like they're converts, you got to be a little suspicious where of course, there's a lot of scriptural authority saying, you know, that the eleventh hour worker gets the gets the same thing as the gets the same reward as the one who came up at the beginning of the workday, which is a obviously sort of a biblical allegory for when you come to to faith, among other things. But I claim no like superiority over credit passes. I will answer that you're absolutely right that to there is an enormous danger of smug self satisfaction to say like, well. Here it is. It's all here. I don't think that's an authentic, authentic life of faith. Here's the here's the I think healthy comfort that can come with an encounter with the Catholic Church's magisterium, is this sense that um, I think is a very human and an admirable longing, which is that there is this there's this sort of road that led up to this point and this set of steps that move that lead ahead. And so I am somehow in ordered continuity with the past. And this is one of the sort of attractions of the Catholic Church is that sense of I am, I am on, a, on, a, on, a, on a path and there are sort of guardrails that direct my way. And, you know, if you then cross the guardrails, there is, you know, that you, you fall, you tumble, and then the church will sort of balm your wounds with the sacrament of confession. That's a kind of comfort, but it doesn't mean a kind of complacent. I agree with you. There's a, there is a risk of a kind of complacent, smug self-satisfaction, and that's something to be to be combated. Because yes, there is a magisterium, and yes, you have your individual conscience, and so you come into a new situation every time, and there is a painful grappling, and we all you negotiate with God. We, I do. I, I even now. I mean, I sort of I'm like. Can I get away with this? It's oh, it's late. I Sunday. I it's there's a, the rules say I can I can skip mass because it's late and I was traveling all day. You know that, and it can happen with more serious matters too, right? So yeah, I mean this is just to affirm your point that. But what I what I. But here's what here's what I want here's what yeah. So with one just to finish the thought is that yeah. what I won't do though then to say is to say. You know. Therefore, the magisterium is wrong. Let me, let me rearrange it, and to suit what I, what I happen to want, whatever that may be, I won't do that. I think you know the, the, the whole beauty of the thing. I might, I might fuck up, and so I and I and I want my fuck ups to be recognized as fuck ups, right? But 
I don't want to rearrange the the documents, as it were, to make my fuck ups be good things. Yeah, although God rearranges them for the, for us sometimes. That's his prerogative. Uh, I, I understand, but here's where I'm going with this because we we I've, I've talked about this because yeah, he I, doesn't on, on some absolutes, but anyway, go on. I well, the mercy of God is infinite. So so his understanding or God's understanding of our pathetic flaws and our insignificance as well as our significance is deeper than anything we'll know, and that you know, and I think also there is an element of mystery to the divine that we should never try and dispel. It can't sure. be captured. There is some, if it is not at some level ineffable, it's not what it is. But tell me how this would shift your understanding and your defense. And if it did of classical liberalism, of the, of the, 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 the conservative tradition, I'm, going to call it that because i do believe it's a real conservative tradition i'm an, i'm an okshatian as you know yeah. the emergence of civil society of of a, of a liberal society yeah. is so my when i say liberal i mean one in which a plurality of views can be accepted and lived with and mm -hmm. among tempered by our convictions but also tempered by our humility and unwillingness to impose ways of life on people who do not want to choose it yeah. um, and the conservative defenses of that system. And you have changed your mind, which is your prerogative. And I don't think people should be criticized for changing their mind. But I do want to understand what specifically uh, prompted this fundamental change of mind away from yeah. the conservative defense of, of a liberal order to a conservative attack on the liberal order. I, mean, I wouldn't even say it's conservative anymore. I mean, I... I... I eschew that term a lot because in some ways I'm a man of the right, but you know, when it comes to, this is a, a good entry point to it. When it comes to economic issues, I'm a new dealer and a new dealer plus. So I don't have the typical American conservatives desire to, to roll back the new deal or to go back to a time when there wasn't an administrative state, any of that. Cause I, you know, think, the emergence of capitalism in the 19th century was an extremely sort of, I mean, of course, it brought tremendous growth and and marvel, technological marvels and so forth, but it also dislocated a lot of people. And through a lot of class struggle and blood, sweat and tears, we got kind of welfare states and labor unions and, and, and administrative agencies for regulating the worst of capital's excesses. And I, I'm not only at peace with that stuff, I'm in favor of it. Now, why do I say this is because in part it's because it's not entirely in part it's because the tr the political tradition of the Catholic Church, except in certain Anglo-American countries and except recently, has not been a liberal one. And we have I think we have to be honest about that, even like under Pope Francis. It's not. It's, it, no, <laughs> it, on, on, it, it's communitarian. It, 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 yes, uh, but it also came to terms with liberal democracy in the Second Council, I think, in ways that that argued that religious freedom, for example, was was a virtue, that, that, it, that yeah. the Second Council broke some of the more authoritarian strains within Catholicism and came to terms, thanks in part to Jesuits like John Courtney Murray and so on, yeah, to except, a I mean, pluralistic world. I mean, yeah, except, it, you know, 
on, for example, on religious liberty. Except uh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, except on religious liberty, you know, I agree. I mean, the, the church is, is as embraced as, as a concept, but the lodestar of it remains, of the church remains the common good. So even Dignitatis Humanae says religious liberty, you know, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have, I'm not like one of those people who memorizes Vatican documents, but within the limits of the common good. And that there's that immediately imposes a question of of prudence of of to what extent, you know, what, what religions might be really dangerous for the common good. I don't know, Scientology, I don't know, whatever. I'm just saying, like the 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 church always speaks in very these very careful terms, and it would be very unlike her to have propounded something suddenly in 1965, or 1964, whenever that is radically at odds with what she has been for two millennia prior. So that's just, I mean, so, but, but well, on, on, on the, you let, but I just want to, it, it did in a way. So for example, the demonization of the Jewish 63 broke with that clearly in a way that the church had never fully broken with it before. And, and, and can, part of that is also a commitment to religious pluralism and freedom in the world, which is which is related to that. And these are, I, I think the Second Council, obviously, it didn't change much of the faith, in fact, almost any of the key. But what it did say is that it, it also intuited what it called the spirit of the times and accepted a liberal order as one of the least worst options for humanity. And certainly the alternative to that, which would be, the imposition of religious belief is something that the church eschewed then and eschews now. I mean, the, what we're encountering now, again, I, 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 would, I would resist a, an overly liberal reading of the Second Vatican Council, but we also don't want to get into like a sort of, I cite this chapter of, of, this Vatican it is in, it is subject to interpretation on a variety of absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I would say could not have know, been done otherwise. Especially though, with I will grant you this, especially with like Pope John Paul II in the Church's encounter with communism, he he was probably more so than Francis. He was probably the Pope to embrace you know a certain let's say 1980s Reagan Thatcher arrangement and and give it the, the best gloss that the church could give it. But even he, you know, in Centesimus Annus and in Evangelium Vitae, in various ways warns that, that liberalism itself, certain tendencies of it, if, it's, if, if XYZ elements are absent, can easily become totalitarian. I think that what we've learned over the past, especially the past few years, and why did I go through this, this, this change, is because you see how... I think even in your writing, I detect this, that we see how the a society that says the only sort of lodestars are individual autonomy and the consent of the individual can become in its own way deeply unfree. And so when people call me a post-liberal, what comes to mind, I think, for a lot of my critics is I don't know, like the worst, you know, the the medieval rack is going to come back or so. No. But what we're seeing is that liberalism itself has this incipient totalitarian tendency. Um, and it, it lies in this, that, well, um, that, 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 that human beings actually find freedom 
in, in response to limits. And that paradoxically, we're finding the loss of limits can make us less free. Again, let me give an economic example, only because I find the culture ones, war ones really boring. And I've talked about them so much that I want to sort of blow my brain with a gun when I, the culture war comes up. We can talk about gender ideology, which I know is like high on your priority any given day. Fair enough. And I don't blame you. But so, for example, the loss of the idea of 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 the Sabbath, of, of one day for rest, whether you whether you think it should be Friday, Saturday or Sunday, what was not liberation for the ordinary person. It, it ended up being liberation for the large corporate employer. For the average person, it's meant dislocation of their ability to sort of have any sort of regularity to spend time with their kids, to spend time with family, et cetera, et cetera. There are many other examples of the kind. And so, you know, the politics I advance are, it's not to say that there are no rights or there is no individualism, right? That there's, of course, the, the classical and Christian tradition, the pre-liberal tradition had rights, they, but they corresponded with duties. Why do you have a right as a parent? Because it corresponds to your duties as a parent and the the, the goal of ensuring the flourishing of a, the next generation. And insofar as a, a right corresponds to a duty, a right has limits. This is a kind of classical way of thinking about, uh, is a classical and Christian way of thinking about many questions. And actually makes you less absolutist. You're, it means, in my case, I'm, I'm not a Second Amendment absolutist. You know, I think it's crazy that like you can buy these submachine gun looking things in the U.S., and you can give any number of excuses for why we have a certain kind of shooting in the United States. But the easiest explanation is because we have the, gun, the sort of autonomistic, individualistic gun laws that we do. I understand those arguments. But let's talk about your example, Sunday or Sabbath of some sort. Sure. I don't see why a state or could not simply say no one has to work on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Pass a law. It could be done. The question there will be, what if an individual wants to buy some goods on that day? What if a struggling shopkeeper thinks that Sunday is the one day that they're going to make their money? At some level, there's the, 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 the rubber hits the road and you're saying to someone, no, you cannot earn a living in the next 12 hours. Sure, sure. And sure. at some point, a, a cop has to come around and enforce it. Now, yeah. you can see why that's difficult, but I don't think it's impossible. And it doesn't violate any core principles of, of, of liberty? It, it doesn't. It's a collective agreement to, to do something which will benefit everyone. And I don't think it's a massive blow to liberal society to reinstitute a Sabbath. I do think it, it becomes problematic when you're telling people how to do it. In other words, you can do things in, in terms of, of, of arguments that apply to people of many different faiths or none at all, which is, which is good. And which you know, social conservatism, I think, at its best is saying the only way to sustain an ordered liberty is through the exercise of personal responsibility. And if we don't balance the political freedom with social responsibility, we're going to end up in a, in a, in a sorry state of affairs. But that is not the same thing as abandoning liberalism. I, and and, and, and you, you explicitly want to abandon even the aspiration to have a pluralist society in that way. Am I, is, that, is that too... Is that, to I, would, view of I would slightly correct that and to say that I would not make of pluralism the highest good of society. But that doesn't mean that you would not have various, for example, individual communities within a larger community that had that they're all bound by some universal principles, which 
even a liberal society is, right? And in, including in a liberal society, some of those are coercively enforced. So that's general to all societies. And so I would not, but to say that, um, to say that we're going to have, we're going to build a society around a principle of pluralism, it's not just that I don't think we should aspire to it, it's that I think it's impossible. One way or another, we're seeing, because of man's religious nature, because of his desire to always enshrine what he thinks is the highest good, not just private bedroom or his shrine, but in the public square, one way or another, you're going to be subjected to some orthodoxies in the public square. And so, and, and here's here's what I would say in the case of the of the Sabbath example. First of all, the United States had a Sabbatarian tradition up until very recently. And that just shows you that even under liberalism, under prior versions of it, there used to be a greater room for communitarian, non-liberal practices and restrictions. And second of all, it's like, yes, you're at some point you're going to have to coercively enforce it. This is where I profoundly disagree with the typical liberal, especially a certain kind of free market liberal, right? Free market liberal says there is a place called the marketplace in which you come in and I come in and we freely exchange and then we walk away not having coerced each other. This is like capitalism and freedom. This is Milton Friedman. In fact, the market is is shot through with coercion, right? The I mean, this is actually a good progressive insight that like when I sign an employment... When I meet my employer as an employee, yes, we are both free to sign or walk away. The minute I sign the employment contract, I'm subject to almost 24-7 coercion by my employer. Now, it's true that that's not the government doing it, but it's no less real just because it's a more kind of diffuse private kind of coercion. So I think so, I don't the, see the why people working. The post-liberal, the key post-liberal insight is that coercion is, is, is inevitable in society. The market society, whether it's bankruptcy laws, whether it's the use of private arbitration as a way to defer actual sort of courtroom justice, whether it's just the power of, if I don't sell this to you, you can choose not to buy it, but you might also starve. All of those are instances of more diffuse private coercion. And we see now, especially on the ideological front, how it doesn't take a old school sort of total state to practice really kind of coercive ideological punishment of of the citizen if you if you if you say something about whether or not a man can become a woman on twitter you'll be unpersoned and that that actually bears some cost that's that that is not just like oh so now you just can't post on twitter well no a lot of that is that is where we are supposed to be able to debate ideas in a free society i can go outside in a street and bang a drum and say I believe this and that, and people will think I'm a nutter. It's these platforms that matter, and it's where you have your social identity. And if you're, if they take it away from you, you're sort of unpersoned, and that's what they do. So it just shows you that, that it's, but, to me, that opened up my eyes to the idea that liberalism's promise of sort of, it, you know, of, of a the state gets out of the way is illusory. First of all, the state in many ways doesn't get out of the way, but then the marketplace itself is full of tyranny. Well, when you say tyranny, let's take your example, which you said, which I think is, 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 is that when you sign an employment contract, you are controlled 24-7, you said, by your boss. Oh, for, no, okay. For, not for true. Two not, of the day. Just not <laughs> true. Uh, you, you can leave that office and certainly most of the time you can practice whatever religion you want. You can bring your kids up whatever way you want. You can buy and sell what you want. 
the the idea that there are deals made in which yes you're going to pay me i'm going to do this job and in doing that job i'm certainly not going to attack you or 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 violate professional standards in working for you that's not the same thing as tyranny and in a vibrant economy and and people who live in actual tyranny will be the first to tell you that but here i have to i have to slightly suggest that you and i so like i run my own publication with a few colleagues and you kind of work independently as a journalist if you look at the actual employment contract today that's a, a fortune 500 company uses you'd be shocked at the degree to which you are surrendering a right to be surveilled so for example if you this is i could show you examples actual examples of fortune 500 companies in which when you sign the employment agreement you agree that they encourage you to use your own devices to access system company systems and in doing so you you grant them the right to confiscate your device in the case of any kind of dispute or to be able to or you access give them grant them access to monitor your online behavior the, the growing but, use but of so, for example the so banking, this requires adjustment it requires reform. It re requires trade about. unions to push back no. against this. To say, let's have a let's have a less point. restrictive workplace. This is this can all be done within the rubric of of liberal democracy. You don't have to change its principles to moderate the way it is enforced. That's but but ultimately we're saying that that we cannot and will not impose a general orthodoxy on everyone by virtue of their being a citizen of this country. And that's that's the distinction between liberalism but you and illiberalism. Are, you are subject to all sorts of orthodoxies. Like from the government? Uh, well, so yes. I mean, when the government says, tells social media companies that so-called like COVID misinformation, some of which is real misinformation, but some of which was legitimate reporting, and it was important, and it, the government insisted that, it's the, that this be suppressed, that is, first of all, that's basically effective government coercion. They, but even if, it, if the government doesn't lie, if it, even the government doesn't lie behind it, you know, any number of like, even if you have a sophisticated person with a platform like I don't know Jordan Peterson or, or Dave Rubin or whatever, you'll get censored for saying that so and so is a man who just happens to like think he's a woman, right? You will not get censored. You cannot be censored by the federal government or by any state government. Right, but that's that that just to me that's a sort of You can, however, be censored in less liberal countries like the United Kingdom, where the government does enforce the government, the police enforces things. That what makes America different is the First Amendment, which will always foil these attempts. If and and certainly in terms of you know, the, the, the unintended consequences of the liberal society can be addressed within the rubric of liberal society. And, so and I, would, I, don't, I, I don't understand why this can't just be a moderation of a liberal society rather than a wholesale overturning of it. Well, in, 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 in practice, what I'm proposing may just look like moderation, of, but it would require being willing to question some liberal first principles, like, for example, the kind of Milton Friedmanian belief that coercion only happens in the public square. Yes, but now you're just putting up a straw man of liberalism, whereas, in fact, and I don't mean it to be that pejoratively, but, but it's a rather extreme version of it. Most of us understand that a liberal society is one which does not seek to impose uniformity of belief on all of its citizens in any of the profound issues at stake in the world. 
It's a very rare thing in human history. It certainly wasn't existing in the country you grew up in. It is being winnowed away in some parts of Europe by the government stepping in to control what it calls harmful speech. But the United States' First Amendment, why I love this country, why you, I think, also forbids such a thing. Of course there can be social and private sector coercion. This country has been brilliant at it for 300 years. I mean, it has religious revivals that... That it's had prohibition, it's had all sorts of things. But because it never actually prevents the voicing of alternative arguments, even if they may be squeezed out of certain places, they're still there. It does always allow us for the possibility of its own improvement and the correction of error. So, so I, what I'm trying to suggest is that um, in some matters, you and I, or may, maybe it would say for for any number of important matters, you and I want the same thing. I'm only suggesting that in order to to get there, we have to we have to critique certain aspects of sort of liberal dogmatism that in practice cash out as as actually pretty oppressive. So give me an example so that we can where you and I will disagree. So you and I will I mean think now okay, let's talk about your I don't really want to do this, but but let's talk about Drag Queen Story Hour. Yeah. That you, you've had a big fight with David French, partly about this. Yeah. Now, my position is this. If there's misbehavior, absolutely, I don't think we're in disagreement. Stop anything that could be misbehavior. But having parents bring voluntarily their, ch- their child to a voluntary event with a man dressed up in women's clothes to teach them stories... I, I, I cannot understand why that is such a terrible violation to such an extent it needs to be stopped. So the argument that I made in the famous Frenchism essay is that these kinds of autonomy demands never end up, just end with, let me do X, Y, and Z. They always will shift to, not only should I be allowed to do X, Y, and Z, to fulfill my sense of autonomy, but also the rest of society has to honor my choice of saying so and should say that it's positively a good thing. Well, no, they don't. It's perfectly possible. Well, let me give you an example. For example, it's possible to stand outside a drag queen story hour with posters saying, we oppose this. Totally, and people have, but that's not, that's not where it stops. So now the New York City school system has, you know, to great controversy, devoted something like $200,000 to drag programs in K through 12 schools. I, you know, I live here. I mean, it was obviously the New York Post made hay out of it and so on and so forth. And it, the reason I mentioned this is around when I published that essay, Charlie Cook, I don't know if you know him. He's a works at National Review. Well, there, there are a couple of Charlie Cooks, but yeah. yes, yeah. the younger one. That one, that one. At the time, <laughs> he made precisely the argument that you made you know, let them have, you know, they, they would have that and other people can protest it. But that's not how, that's not how liberalism in practice cashes out. It always ends up with a demand for sort of, now it should be enshrined as a public good. So in the case of Drag Queen Story Hour, there are little efforts now, and they always will grow. We've seen this in many other instances to say that it, it should be in schools and, and so on and so forth. And Charlie was puzzled. Three years later, he wrote a, a short blog post being like, wait a second, why is this happening in schools? What, in, right, like a, a California you know, 
state level politician said we should have a drag queen like sort of curriculum in the California public schools. So it, the demand, and of course you see this especially with with gender ideology, right? The idea that okay, that's been around. So since why the, can't you just say? Yeah. Why can't we say in a society, as DeSantis is saying, for example, no, in public schools, this subject is not going to be taught before the age of eight or whatever, insofar as children aren't able to access information in a million I mean, other different ways. In the that, high that's great that he but says let's so. Just say, I, let's stop it. Why, why is eight the... Right? So that's not illiberal, it seems to me. It's actually in the sense that it's the government deciding what it teaches in schools, which it always has done and always will. And insofar as public good, public money is spent, there's a public process for disagreement. School board meetings, discussion of curriculum, all of that's going on. Of course, a lot but of liberals you can see will in call some states they're changing or, it, or they'll call. Them well, they can, but they're doing the same. That's because thing. we have to make a distinction between public and private goods, which is the central principle of liberalism. Any dif- distinction between public and private is essentially a liberal idea. It is perfectly possible to have your public institutions committed to count to a variety of views, and your private institutions able to do whatever the hell they want. There are some restrictions on private association, by the way, that I oppose. And I, I think it does, it does what yeah, you're saying as, as, a, as a liberal ideal doesn't comport with like your own Twitter feed, which is, you know, riddled with examples of that show you that I'm horrified by this stuff. And, and, I, and part are, of my job as a, as a writer to expose it and to argue that we should be changed. But I'm not arguing that we need to prevent parents from taking their kids to places they don't want it, they want to take them. I'm just well, arguing yeah. about well, keeping again, public. Again, to show and I think how... I'm defending liberalism because this I is know. the left coming in and imposing orthodoxies. To show you how sort of deeply in continuity I am with the American tradition and nothing sort of weird and Roman trying to be imposed is, you know, we have had obscenity laws in this country, federal obscenity laws going to the founding and then common law obscenity laws going back to the colonial era. Those laws are still on the books, right? And so you, you could do either of two things is to say that our, you know, the American tradition as a whole was utterly totalitarian until relatively recently, like what, what year you want to draw the line, 2015 or something like that. Or you can recognize that even this country, this sort of probably the most ideologically liberal nation ever founded, even it wasn't quite as liberal as a lot of sort of committed, quote unquote, classical liberals frame it to be. We had, like I said, obscenity laws. We had a national developmental kind of economic tradition in Hamilton. We had the Sabbatarian laws, like we mentioned. And so to me, sort of the recovery of some of this is within the American tradition. It's not something Roman and exotic. And so maybe you and I... So why why do you insist on calling it illiberal or post-liberal when it's simply pushing back within the liberal system to restore some sensible boundaries that can be achieved by people within a liberal society because I, and, because and change I their minds. I have no I problem that, with that. I think the pure, un- unadulterated liberal tradition, which is not the American tradition, but the pure, unadulterated sort of Anglo-American liberal tradition on its own, without the tempering force of, of Christianity, without the tempering force of, in some ways, the labor movement, all of these things that came about to restrain it in some ways. On its own, it is 
it is that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lead us to where we well, are. Well, then the answer is to restore trade unions. The answer is to restore uh, churches or those communities that, that provide institutional, private yeah, teaching I'm not, I'm responsibility. Not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not asking uh, for much more than that. I would only say that... But I don't see how David French would disagree with that. Well... I guess we. I mean, we. I guess we profoundly disagreed on that one particular issue. But I know. I think there are differences here. Well, what were you? What were you disagreeing with about there? Even I. I, well, I, I don't. Mean, I don't really see. Do you want to take it as, really a, as, a, as a philosophical matter or as a quotidian matter? At a quotidian matter, I think Drag Queen Story Hour should be banned. And if our constitutional development has taken us to a point where we can't ban it, then that's that's a recent development. Like I said, we used to have obscenity laws in this country. Sorry. I said no, no, no obscenity law would cover a, a, a person in costume teaching reading books to kids. No obscenity law. If they were being obscene, sure, and I think no one's questioning that. But they're not. I, mean, I would, I would, uh, I would, I would show you banning some, some, you, 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 would some ban, you would make it illegal. I think, I think you have a, I have, have a romantic idea of what happens at Drag Queen Story Hour. I can well, show I have, you. Have, how many have you been to? I, I, you can find footage on YouTube. It's, it's much more. I haven't found an actual, actual library reading experience which has them doing strip teases. I've seen, okay. I've seen drag I mean, strip in bars which parents have taken their kids to. I think inappropriately. But I, I haven't seen any actual drag, libraries. I can show you one in Britain where the drag queen twerks for the kids in a library, right? I think that. He, under common law and britain law. on the question of free expression uh-huh. is less free than the united states right and so again but it's still it's still a, a, a more or less a liberal regime and what i'm saying is both britain and the united states have legal traditions for restraining this stuff where dra- where david french wouldn't do it but more to make it more philosophical I just but but so rob let me i just want to press this point because it's a little point but it's it does contain something you would actually say it's illegal for a parent to take their child to a place where a drag queen performs. Illegal. There'd be fines I, for it. I, I would Do you really think that's enforceable? That as recently as, as within living memory, that would have been completely normal in the American tradition. That would, the idea of someone... Give me, a, give, me a, a, give me a precedent. We have, give me an example of, that would have we, been... That you could not take your child to a, a library where someone would be reading books to them in a, in, in a silly costume. At what point is that something that would have been banned in America before now? I mean, you, you, can, you can peg it to, for example, obscene gestures, for example. Or you could say, you know, if you don't use, if you don't deploy obscenity laws, you can deploy, you know, there's a, there's a lot of lo- lo- local libraries are governed by local library ordinances. And those local library ordinances always say, like, the, the, per- the, the rooms for this, you know, the use of this room has to be for, you know, whatever, like, kind of like wholesome educational purposes. I don't know, exactly, I mean, it varies by ordinance by ordinance, town by town. You could interpret those in a more restrictive way. And so, again, and, and then, again, look, in so far... What if a majority of people don't want to do that? So far, Drag Queen Story Hour is, a, is, a, is an obsession of a, a, a very narrow but vocal minority, and they're insisting on not only having it in the library, but as I predicted in 2019, to have it at the public school. And I, I don't see you're going to have a majority, but I would say... 
you know, majorities what, can be What wrong. I'm trying to fathom, Saurabh, so is I'm sure. What I'm trying to fathom is, is if it's not obscene and it helps kids to read and these people are larger than life in silly costumes, I just, I can't imagine a rationale for saying no. What is your rationale for saying there? No obscenity involved, but just a yeah. man in a stupid outfit teaching children. What's, yeah, what's, and if a lot you were of wearing an astronaut suit, you'd be fine? Yeah, I wouldn't mind an astronaut suit, but in a lot of cases, there has been obscenity. As I told you, I can show you, 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 you know, like YouTube footage of, of cases in libraries where then we're, we're not in disagreement about that. You, but, but hold on. But you, uh, but in, you, in terms of what other reason, I think that drag is a, you'd be surprised. I happened, I happen to live literally above a drag bar. I'm not kidding in Midtown. Now, have you heard of Saurabh Amari takes a pitchfork to his local drag bar? No, because I haven't done that because it's an adult experience, right? But insofar as it's targeted at children, it gives them a weird account of femininity, right? It's a sort of kind of fetishistic account of femininity that's not healthy, like for a kid to, to think of, of woman as this sort of garish performative thing rather than something richer than that and something a little bit more biological than that, frankly. You know, I, I am not, again, like yeah, I said, as I'm, I said not, I'm, I'm not at with I, I have no problems with right banning now. obscenity for children. I'm just, I just, I just don't think silly men in costumes mimicking mimicking women which is something by the way that every birth child has been brought up on from the beginning of time well certainly in the, is gonna is a huge prevailing question of morality but, he, the but larger, more generally the, sorry the more the general larger, point that's a, that's a yeah let me just okay. the larger point sorry. the larger point of disagreement with with david french and i would say classical liberals is that they treat culture as something that's innocent of political dynamics that's not warped by by laws and, and a thousand material conditions. And this is sort of my disagreement with much of the existing right in this country, where they think culture is just this thing that we have to work on the culture. We have to like do good things in the culture. And, and it's all sort of voluntaristic. That's not how culture actually works. Culture arises from material conditions. It, and again, I'm not just talking about laws that permit this or that perversion or not, whatever. I'm talking about actually economic issues, whether or not, for example, you have sufficient family formation, you have the ability to um, uh, form a family, have children, et cetera, et cetera. It's heavily dependent on how we organize our economy. And the existing, I'm not saying you, the existing kind of like GOP establishment is premised by the idea. And this is maybe where I agree with you more than you, you would think. They think they, they 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 lament the fact that oh people aren't going to church anymore oh people aren't uh, forming families oh people aren't having kids but they don't recognize that 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 the economy that they promote this sort of ruthlessly free market economy makes it harder for them to 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 do that. Likewise, I think that's a that's a very valid critique, but it's a it's a critique Daniel Bell made forty years ago, fifty years and ago. And Christopher Lash and others of capitalism, not something new to conservative worries about liberalism. My, my simple question, I, I have no problem in attempting to correct things that you think have led to imbalances and, and, and things that are unintended consequences, et cetera, et cetera. I, what, we, there's no settlement. We have to figure things out as we go along. But I don't see why that disputes the model, the core model. It's, and maybe this is simply a disagreement about what post-liberal means, because I don't, I, what you're describing is not 
post-liberal. It is it is a sort of conservative liberalism in a way which it's, which stresses it's, it's, the importance of what sorry. It's really not though, because in order for first of all, we are where we are, and I think there's a it's incumbent upon us to look around us. And you do this, I think, I mean, I, I, I read your Substack, I look at your Twitter account, you do this with respect to gender ideology, right? I mention it because it's the most extreme case in which on, in some ways on perfectly liberal autonomistic terms, recognize me as I am, we're being asked to voice absurdities. And when we fail to do them, or when we voice the opposite view, we find ourselves banished from the public square. The, and that's that I would oppose that partly because that, it's untrue, but also because that itself is illiberal. Now, if you're I saying think, that we need to counter illiberalism with illiberalism in order to get back to liberalism, right, I'm not saying that we should. Then that's that. one we argument. Should, we should counter it in order to get back to sanity. And what I mean by sanity is we should be able to to say that men are men and women are women, and there's something irreducibly sort of biological about that reality, which something genetics tells us, let alone, you know, the book of Genesis. And so in, in order to do that, we do have to overcome at that element of liberalism, which is recognize me, recognize my autonomous claims. My autonomy is more important than natural reality. My autonomy is more important than community. That's where this stuff lazes, comes from, which is why when I say I'm post-liberal, it's a recognition that some of what you recognize as oppressive in liberalism, I'm sorry, in something like gender ideology, is latent in liberalism itself. It's a kind of working out of the liberal logic of autonomy will bring you to a point where you're being forced to affirm nonsense. And that's, if that well, sounds, there's, if, there's, if that's, there's, there's, if you think that's you can you can combat that within the frame of liberalism itself, and that then we don't have much to agree. Maybe we we we're we're closer than than. You well, think what we we're are getting right. at there is another is a slightly different question. It seems to me, Sora, because what we're saying is that is that yes, individuals should have rights within certain areas, but you don't have the right to define reality for everyone else, and it is it is certainly not illiberal to say the position i hold for example which i don't think is that i if i do believe that transgender people exist and deserve dignity and equality in our society i think that's a mark of a humane world i will refer to the pronouns that they desire if, if it ever comes up but i'm not going to go further than she or he reversing them i'm not going to go into third person plurals for people i am not going to entertain that there are 74 different genders that we will have to have different pronouns for that's what obviously bonkers. What, what principal reason do you have for accepting the latter but foregoing the i'm sorry accepting the former because but foregoing the latter? because i'm utterly convinced through my own experience and through reading and through study that transgender people exist that they really do have a profound conflict between what their body says they are and what their mind says they are. And that I think it is a humane position that those genuinely affected should be allowed for their own safe, safety, dignity, and self-esteem to okay. transition to another sex okay, and to have that sex recognized why, why, by law. Why not, why, it doesn't mean not, I have to say... What if, why not gender neutral It doesn't mean I have to say they're they? equivalent. Why do you stop? With, why, why not the they people? Because, in fact, 
because because that's 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 essentially it's a too absurd personality disorder. <laughs> and, but and I don't think there is I don't think there is evidence anywhere out there that human beings genuinely think they're a cat inside. I do know that there are people who genuinely say, and I know, and they're not lying to me, Saurabh, and you, and maybe they're, they're, they're absolutely is like you or me or anyone. And I want to make society not hurt them unnecessarily. Does that mean I want to change the entire world around their perspective? No. And that I know is a difficult thing because the, the argument within, let's say, a kind of illiberal liberalism is, well, that hurts my feelings, so you can't say that. That, yeah. I agree, has to be cut off. But that's a kind of therapeutic liberalism I, that we I, don't I, I have not, to not sustain. Hear, I did not hear a principled reason for why a biological man who says that he is a woman, it, you, you, you think those claims are should be absolutely honored, whereas someone who says well, I'm hey, they no, not. I, if I were a gender type person, I would say you're being terrible about therapy. You're denying the they. What, what, I, I don't. I, I, no, what is the reason? I'm, I'm denying that they because there's one person in front they're, of me they're logically and one person right? involved, they're, they're and they is a plural. They're they're logically consistent. They say they're basically total nominalists. They're you know nominalism the idea that there's no essential kind of categorization that you can do about anything. They say, call me they on this day, but some some days I feel like a she, and there you, then you have to call me a she, and and they'll they'll just come up with whatever. And I can say, no, I'm not doing that. I'll go this far. But you don't have a principle because reason I do it. have a principle view, which is that, in fact, there aren't actually genuine people say, believing that they're cats when they're not or acorns or whatever they call themselves. There are and always have been in human history a tiny minority of people who genuinely are transgender. And I don't see why, if they can prove that and show that, that they should not be allowed to be treated According That's to what the, the bay people idea. say. They're, they say, I feel like a they. Uh, well, there, like, but there's no that, evidence that, that they you're do. Grant, you're granting one nominalism but denying the other. Well, yes, because I'm actually saying that in some forms, some exceptions can be made for the sake of humane society. And now I can also agree that that, can be, that principle can be taken and run with in a way that's chaotic. But I don't think, therefore, we can't allow any exceptions to these things. So I am in this moderate, moderate middle here. I, I want to, and I don't want to go over this again and again because, but we should have another conversation because I, I wanted to understand better your, your, your trajectory through all of this. I do think. Well, I enjoyed this, and I really appreciate the time, and it was a, I, I, it was a long I, podcast. And maybe I we could yell it. at really... each other in private and enjoy it sometime. <laughs> but, but again, I, I, I understand why people find liberalism's late stage degeneracy problematic. <laughs> Let's put it that Thank way. You. Thank you. <laughs> I do not want to throw the entire baby out with the bathwater when I actually think that if you could break the grip of some of these elites and if you can show that most people don't buy this stuff, but they also don't want to be mean and cruel, if we can find a center, then that's the American way to go forward. I agree with you. I don't see anybody out there making that position. I agree with you that these things are getting more and more polarized, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to give up the principle of neutral. And I'll tell you why. And it comes out of my history of religious faith in a way. What you may be forgetting is that liberalism came out of a response to the certainty of some faiths fighting the certainty of others' faiths. 
around matters that really do are important and around which but neither side would tolerate compromise. And after the unbelievable carnage, terror, torture, murder, civil wars, Europeans decided maybe we could put this aside. And, and America was born out of that understanding. And I think you're I underestimating guess, the, the difficulty. The of, age, free of yes. warfare, no French Revolution, no terror, no civil war. No, of course that still <laughs> happened. It still happened, and horrible so things happened. But, okay. I, but you know, look, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, we have to be careful about a kind of black legendism. That doesn't mean that the pre-modern world was a utopia. It absolutely wasn't. But this sense that there was, that societies, for example, that had a cohesive idea of what the highest good was and somewhat coercively enforced them were just riven by horrors after horrors. And no, then, I don't agree with that and either. Then, and then came modernity, which was clean and and basically tidy. You, and, no, I don't believe that either. Absolutely not. The, the modern wars of ideology um, were but, infinitely more brutal than anything the pre-modern age conjured. But you cannot unthink as a species, the things that we have unthought, uh, I mean, thought. In other words, I, I don't see I a way that, back from here. This is this is a good point maybe to end it on, but I okay. think what you're describing is essentially kind of, which I reject, is this kind of account of, of human development, which runs around the axis of progress and reaction rather than true or false. Progress reaction, people say, well, we've we've come along here this far, and so, and there's it, the the egg the omelet can't be put together anymore because we're here now whereas if you think about things in a sort of more metaphysical way or you have a sense of true false realism something is and you say well look some things that the moderns got right are right let's accept that but some things they got wrong they got wrong and we reject that and then you you're not you don't have this anxiety that if you retrace your steps on certain questions you're going back as though as though time itself ratified the movement of time doesn't ratify 2022 well, it doesn't we're getting to an even deeper okay notion, which is that <laughs> and this is where this is where some british conservatism differs from some american conservatism but for me history is is the story of this idea and i don't have to believe that it's inevitable progress but i can say the society i grew up in in england and the society i now live in the united states is a society that I'm proud of, happy to be a, be part of, that that I find humane, colorful, diverse, pluralistic, and I think it needs constant attention and reform. But yes, I do think it's better than most other ways of life, and I want to pretend, I want to protect it. Now we 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 may disagree I, about that. But I think, I, I think I, it's better in some respects and worse in some others. But we can stop there. <laughs> so, Rob, I'm fascinated to hear about your faith and and your struggle towards it. And thank you for having this. good humor. I would go and... on for having to go to work. Yeah, but it's good. I didn't look. The whole point of this podcast, in a way, I'm trying anyway, is to act is is, liber, is liberalism, which is which is the freedom to disagree with people, not hate them, lobby these arguments back and forth, and think about it in between. And and you you're a great liberal in that respect, so Rob. I thought this was fantastic. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. We talked long. Thank you so much. So I do recommend the book from Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith, which I, I, I thought was 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 fairly honest. And I have to say, I think quite revealing about, about you and where you've come from. 
And I think if you want to understand where he is, I think that book is kind of essential for you. Thanks so much. We will we will see you again next week. We're, we're popping these podcasts out every week. We know you enjoyed them. This one went for almost two hours. We were at Rogan level. But if you do like them, please subscribe. I'm not giving you ads for lawnmowers or mortgages in between discussing post-liberalism, for which pay us. Anyway, you know the drill. It's very easy. And hope to see you next week. Thanks so much, Sarah, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.